Bible studies. Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. I'm going to take a moment to pray and then we will get started in the study. Father, thanks for this opportunity to meet, this opportunity to gather, this opportunity to welcome you into God, our, our midst. And so we ask you, Jesus, that you would speak tonight, you would lead tonight, you would reveal tonight. pray you'd teach tonight. I pray, God, we'd have ears to hear. I pray, God, for your word to go forth and to bring change and be creative in our lives. I pray that you'd make some stuff out of nothing in us tonight, in our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our souls. I just ask you, God, that this be a time of your creative power uh, as you make understanding, as you bring whatever it is you want to bring tonight, God, we want to receive. So we ask you, Lord, that you move in our midst. We welcome you again. And we say, have your way. Speak. We're ready to hear, ready to listen. We give you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With your Bibles, let's open up to Second Chronicles chapter 35. Second Chronicles chapter 35. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. You can feel free to use the Bibles on the tables or digital version, whatever you have. 10 Chronicles 35, I need a volunteer to read verse 2. 2. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. Thanks. I had, when I was reading this, I was reading it in a different version uh, when I did the study on it. And in the version I was reading, it, it had a, a literal translation of, of what the words there mean. And it basically said, Josiah cheered up the priest. He cheered him up. Yeah. And uh, so that struck me that he would be cheering them up. And uh, it kind of begs the question, why weren't they cheery already? But we don't know the answer to that, or maybe we do know the answer to that. And... And maybe this is a, just a good word for us at a certain seasons. It's a good word to remember 
when you find yourself in certain seasons of ministry or certain seasons of of service to remember that uh, sometimes it's okay that we need to be cheered up because maybe we need a little cheering. Uh, we usually use that word cheered up to mean to make happy, to make cheery. But uh, you can also think of it in terms of like cheerleaders. Remember cheerleaders? They would uh, lead the cheer uh, for the whatever team that they was playing and they were supposed to be there to help the team move forward and to encourage them and to help them you know, you know, get them going. Now, to be honest with you, I played a few different sports that had cheerleaders over the years. I never once noticed any of the cheerleaders during a game. Never once. I never even heard them. I didn't even know what was going on. Cheerleading? Yeah. And and I don't mean any offense to anybody that's a former cheerleader or anything, because, I, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, you know, good, whatever. I'm glad. And there's a lot of acrobatics and stuff, and... And they had a, a show on, I think it was Netflix, they had uh, some championship cheerleading team. And that was kind of interesting. You know, all the drama going on with that and the cheerleaders and, and all the tumbling and acrobatics they have to do and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, to be honest, I, I just never even noticed them. And maybe it was just me. I was just kind of into the game. I didn't notice the crowd usually either. and uh, And so that was just me. But I know that uh, professional athletes and college athletes especially feed off of crowd noise. They feed off of people being excited about what's going on and that that's an important aspect of the game and it makes the fans feel involved and that's all great. So we all have this idea of cheering and we cheer our team. We cheer on whoever we can cheer on. Um, You know, there's always that one guy at a road race that has the cowbell. You know, ringing the cowbell when you're running by. Thanks, buddy. That doesn't really help me. Pete, does that help you at all? Does the cowbell inspire you to go any further? Maybe to get away from it, right? I mean, yeah. But but not really running. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, and, and there's people that they're always there. They're cheering you on and all that. It's, it's good. So So, this guy, Josiah, the king, he was cheering up the priests. Right, and so whatever way you want to understand that, just like maybe they were down a little bit and he was cheering them up, or maybe they were they needed a little bit of encouragement, they needed a little bit of push, and he was just cheering them on, like all right, let's keep going, let's get it done, and he was helping them to get there. So whatever way you want to see that, whatever you want to understand that, um, that's that's all right. Josiah is an important uh, figure in the life of what God was doing uh, because he was somebody that had gotten rid of the idols in the land. And when the Bible looks at, you look at the land there, Israel, Judah, and how idolatry had taken over. Because there'd be certain kings that would come along and they would promote it. Certain kings would come along and then they that's what they would model or, or whatever would happen. And so they would set aside... God, they set aside the work of the temple the way it was supposed to work. They set aside the priesthood and they would appoint new priests and they would lead them into Baal worship, the Asheroth poles, whatever it was that they were going to do, Moloch, however they were going to worship. 
And, and so the country, the nation, would just go downhill from there. And interestingly, that it, it was always coincided with these moves toward idolatry and how Israel would begin and Judah would begin to falter in other ways also. And there's a direct correlation with that. There's a direct correlation with faith and prosperity. There's a direct correlation with faith and peace. There's a direct correlation with, between faith and and however the country is going to go, the, the way it's going to be. And so uh, make no mistake that even here where we are in the United States, I mean, a country, regardless of what people tell you or what you learned in school, a country that was founded on faith in God, this country was. And, and I know they've tried to change history and they've tried to ignore history and all that, but this country was founded on that and it's written right into our founding documents. So it's hard to ignore that, that that's the fact. It's on black and white in the founding documents. And, and the founders were smart guys. Again, regardless of what people want people to believe these days, these guys are a lot smarter than the guys that are running stuff now. I'll tell you that. They're better educated and they were a lot smarter. And so they understood that faith played a role in the establishment of what they were trying to do. And they promoted that. And it's, it's no, I don't think, any coincidence that I think a statistic came out last year that we finally had reached a point in our country, I think it was in the last year, where less than 50% of Americans went to church for the first time ever. Ever. And it almost looks, and you can almost track it to the day and watch the decline that's been going on. So I'm always of the opinion, and I've and I've been of this opinion since I was first a brand new Christian back in the back in the wonderful 80s. Okay, <laughs> the big hair 80s. Okay. And and so I, I I first came to Jesus in in the big hair eighties and and you know and even from that time there were certain uh, issues that were in, in government or whatever and that Christians took up as a cause and they were all gung ho for these issues and so as college students you, you kind of want to get on that that wagon of okay we need a cause or whatever and so we'd bring in speakers or we'd bring in people. And after a while, it just occurred to me, and I was still a student, it just occurred to me that what's going to create any kind of fundamental change in this country is going to be a reformation of faith. It's going to be a reformation of what people believe. And that's going to happen one person at a time. Because you think about all the hot-button issues that were big in the 80s. Not as big as hair, but they were big in the 80s. They're still hot-button issues now. Nothing has changed. People argue about it. There's an ebb and flow politically. There's an ebb and flow uh, opinion-wise and all the rest of those kind of things. But what really changed? Nothing. Nothing changed on those issues. Those, those, those highly important, we've got to rally for these issues. Nothing really changed. And I've reached a point 
and I was I was accused of being a bit cynical, but I'd reached a point as you know a twenty year old or whatever I was at the time that it, to see any kind of fundamental change, uh, there has to be a fundamental shift in people's faith. That's just what I believe, and so I decided that I would invest my time and my effort not in some kind of political cause or some kind of thing like that, but really into reaching the hearts and minds of men and women through the gospel. And to me, that was the most important thing I could do is to see people set free like that. And if change would come, it comes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But really, I just need to do my job. You know, I don't really see, you know, Paul on the bandwagon you know, protesting the Roman Empire. I didn't see Jesus on the bandwagon protesting the, the Roman Empire. I didn't see the disciples leading marches against stuff that the Roman Empire was doing. Which there were things that the Roman Empire was doing that were fundamentally against what the church believed. And yet, that wasn't their focus. And it never was their focus. Their focus was Jesus. Their focus was the Gospel. Their focus was staying on track staying on point with the gospel, understanding that it's the gospel that was going to change the world. Nothing else. Nothing else. And so, refocusing for me helped me to stay out of senseless arguments and senseless discussions and senseless activities that would mean nothing on the face of eternity. Nothing. And again, if I'm offending some of you, I apologize for offending you, but I'm just telling you my perspective. And my perspective has been unchanged for 30 years, more than 30 years, 35 years. And I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So, Josiah got rid of the idols. That was the thing he did. And there were other kings that did that, but Josiah was particularly successful at it. And, and if you read the different people that comment on Jewish history, they, they comment on the history of Israel, one of the things that they say about Josiah is that when he got rid of the idols, and they really don't take it any deeper than this, but they leave it at that. When he got rid of the idols, it stuck. That was the wording I read. It really stuck. In other words, in other words it wasn't like people didn't just pretend to get rid of their idols. They got rid of their idols. The country, the nation got rid of its idols. And and so what had happened was, and here's a few things that changed that were different under Josiah, and I want you to think, you think about this for a second. I know we're, we're not big-time theologians here with multiple theological degrees. All right? We don't need to be. I just want you to think about this for a second. Josiah gets rid of the idols, and then he reinstitutes the Passover. All right? So, in other words, he decided, he's like, all right, we're going to get rid of these idols, but we're going to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to do. And so, he, he appoints the priests, and he instructs the Levites, and he says, all right, so this is what we're going to do. So, here are the factors I want you to consider. He got rid of the idols. Other kings had done that, but it didn't stick. I want you to think about why this stuck. He got rid of the idols, and then he reinstituted the Passover. What's the Passover? 
The Passover is celebration. The Passover is a celebration of deliverance. The Passover is a celebration of God taking care of His people. The Passover is a celebration of God's provision for His people. The Passover is a time of worship. The Passover is a time for people to gather from all over the nation in Jerusalem to come together and to worship together. That's what the Passover is all about. And so what he did was he appointed the priests, because he needed priests for the Passover. So he appointed the priests. He's like, all right, so this is your job. This is what I want you to do. Go ahead to it. And then he taught the Levites. Now, I want you to consider this for a second. What does that mean? Well, the Levites taught everybody. That was their job back then. They were the teachers. And so he took time with the teachers. And he said to the Levites, all right, I'm going to invest into you. I'm going to invest time. I'm going to invest effort. I'm going to invest who I am into you. And this is what I have for you. And he instructed them and he taught them as the teachers of the people. And the Bible says that they were set apart as holy unto the Lord. Now, the only thing I want you to gather from that is that I want you to gather from that Levites weren't particularly holy people. They were just regular people that were born from the tribe of Levi. Okay? So they had a descendant. They, they all came down from Levi. That's what happened. Does that make them particularly holy as individuals? No. Not at all. And, and here's what I want you to hear from this. When God says that you and I, that we are a holy nation, a peculiar people, all right? That's what he says about it. He means it. That's the same sense that he says the Levites were holy under the Lord. Now, you think about it. Were there Levites that were jerks? Yeah. Were there Levites that were liars? Of course. Were there Levites that stole stuff? Yeah, there were. Were there Levites that cheated people? Yes. Were there Levites that, that were mean to their families? Yes. Were there Levites that, that uh, divorced their wives for no reason? Yes. Were there Levites that got into family arguments and stole property from the family? Yes. How do I know that? Because they're people. And if you look at any group of people, you have people within that group that do things like that. It's just the way it is. It's like there's always one guy at the four-way stop, right? You know you know that guy. He just can't wait. He's a guy that can't wait. And you can only assume he's on his way to the hospital with his pregnant wife maybe five times in a row. But, I mean, you just can't keep assuming that. And so after a while, you accept the fact there's that guy. And he's there. And he's going he's gonna to get you because you're going to be a little slow on the accelerator. He's going to get you. He's going to catch you. Zoom. All right. So there's those people. So the Levites, hear me. This is what I want you to get from this. The Levites were holy under the Lord because God said so. And you don't even question that. You read that, oh, they were holy under the Lord. Yeah, but you don't think about they're individual people that are just as messed up as we are. Okay? And, and so the reason they were holy under the Lord is because God said so. The reason we're holy under the Lord is because God says so. It's harder for us to accept that because we know how messed up our lives are sometimes. And so we have a super hard time accepting that. But 
It isn't anything to do with that. It's to do with what God says about us. God says we're a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. That's who we are. And it's not because we feel it. It's because God says it. It's not because we made that decision. We've made the determination. Well, I guess I'm holy. No. No. It's because God says you're holy. So I just wanted to say that because I know some of you really struggle with your identity. In front, you know, when you stand before God, you really struggle with that. You struggle with that identity of, you know how messed up you are. Well, what does that mean in my relationship with God? Well, what does that mean in your relationship with God? He's the one that saved you. He's the one that calls you holy. He's the one that says you're a kingdom of priests. He's the one that says all these things about you. It's His righteousness that we have. We're righteous because of His righteousness. Be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. Well, what do you think that means? You, do you think he's looking at you and saying, be holy? I mean, I'm holy, so you should be holy too. Or do you think he's saying, be holy because of the fact that I'm holy? Identify yourself in me. And that's how our, our, we have holiness. All that we have that matters in the great economy of the kingdom of God, everything that we have that matters in the economy of heaven, we've been given by Christ. And so for us to even reserve a little bit of that to, to ourselves is to miss the point. It's not us. It's not me. It's not you. That's not how it works. It's Him. So he, he teaches the Levites and He tells them this. He says, go and get that ark and put it back into the temple. Now, there's a question there. Why wasn't the ark in the temple? Because it had been put there by Solomon. Solomon had built the temple and he had the ark put in there. There's a big, a big deal that happens when he does that. The Shekinah glory of God falls on everybody like a cloud and they all get knocked down and, and God's there in His presence. I mean, it's a huge deal. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Well, According, we don't know for sure, but according to, to most accounts, one of the kings, one of the guys that decided idol worship's better, he had it taken out of there so he could turn the temple into a place of pagan worship. So he had the ark taken out and it was put somewhere. And so Josiah said, yeah, well, we got rid of the idols, cleaned it up, so we need some priests, going to appoint the priests, going to do that, all right, let's get the Levites. We're going to instruct them first instruction because they're the ones teaching the people. First instruction, take that, get that ark and put it back in the temple. Put things in order. The presence of God is an important factor in what Josiah was doing with the nation. So here are the factors I want you to consider. He got rid of the idols. Well, everybody did that. Well, a bunch of guys did that. This one stuck. Why do you think it stuck? Well, he reinstituted worship. He reinstituted fellowship. He took hold of the teachers of the people and he took the time to influence and train them and he put a premium on the presence of God. Does it take a genius to figure that out? Why did it stick? Because of all those reasons. 
Because not only did he get rid of something, he filled the nation with what it really needed. And there's this idea of, and, and if you remember back to the three battlegrounds, it's a book by Francis Frangipan, and, and you go back to the three battlegrounds, there's this, he has this theory of spiritual warfare, and, and the theory that he uses of spiritual warfare has to do with displacement. And the idea behind it is, you can go to war against the devil, and you can kick him out. we got the authority to do that. So we can cast out devils. But Jesus gave a good teaching on that. He's like, if you cast out devils, but there ain't nothing in the devil's place, you sweep out the room, you get, you know, if you do everything you're going to do, clean it all up, what's going to happen eventually? Those devils are going to be out in dry places. They're going to say, hey, what are we doing out here? We should go back to where we were. And the Bible says they return even stronger than when they left. All right? You follow that? So Frangipan in his book, he talks about that and he says, here's the idea. He's like, you want to displace the devil. Okay, Josiah, he's kicking out the idols, tearing down the idols, tearing down the groves, tearing down the Asher poles, all the rest of that stuff. He's doing all of it. Doing all of it. Gets it all torn down, but then he begins to displace it with stuff that matters, like worship and fellowship. The presence of God. Good teaching. He begins to displace it with stuff that's really going to make a difference, that's going to take hold in the people's lives. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, casting out fear, and this is an example he gives in the book. I'm not making this up. All right, he gives the example. He says, so you're going to cast out fear. Well, the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So what Frangipan would say is like, go ahead and cast that fear out. Take the authority of Jesus over fear in your life, their life, her life, his life, whoever's life it is. You're going to take authority over that fear, cast it out, but then pray the perfect love of the Father into that person and let it fill them up. Let the Holy Spirit fill them up. Let the perfect love of God fill them up. Because you need to fill that space with something that matters. Something's going to make a difference. And, and that's what we see Josiah doing. He is filling the space with something that mattered. And what you see here is Josiah leading a real reformation over his nation. That's what he's doing. He's leading the reformation. And the reason we know it was a real reformation because after this point that's being described here, there was no open idolatry again during his reign. People's lives were changed. The nation was changed. So you look at that, and we can look at that and say, okay, well, we live in a nation. You want to see fundamental change in a nation. How do you see that? Well, you have to take authority. There's spiritual warfare. But what are you going to fill it with? you got to fill it with something else. You want to pray against lies. Well, you need to begin to pray for truth to fill it. You want to pray against fear? Well, you've got to pray the perfect love of God to fill it. So you think in those terms, or you think about your state, or your county, or your city, or what about your life? You think about your life, and the battles that you rage in your life, that, that are there in your spirit, in your mind, in your heart. Like you're just going to have some battles. 
Well, it's one thing to take authority. It's another thing to cast things out, but you need to fill it with something. You need to fill it with something. How many times have I seen people delivered just to go back? Well, there was nothing to take its place. And that's a problem. That when there's nothing to, to, to move in, when there's nothing to fill that void, those devils come back. They just do. And so we have to keep in mind that there's more than one thing to be done here. We can't make the classic mistake, the classic error, the classic folly of the kings that would, that would be before Josiah and after Josiah that, that they would just, okay, we're going to get rid of the idols. All right, then everything's good. No, it's not good. Because that's, that's like half the battle, literally. All right, we got rid of the idols. We did the deliverance. We got rid of them. All right, well, what are we filling it with now? Well, Josiah just filled it with what he read in the book. He read in the book about the Passover. He's like, so let's have Passover. He read in the book about the priests. He's like, well, we need to appoint some priests. He read in the book about the Levites. And he saw, all right, well, they're the teachers of the people, so I need to influence them. And I need to, to, to have them teaching the people the stuff that really matters. They're also the guys that have the presence of God. So let's, let's put, he read in the book about the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. Let's put the presence of God back in the midst of God's people. Let's do it. That's what he did. And so he filled, he filled the nation, he filled their lives with something that mattered. And so I want to encourage you that, that good, you see, you see something, I need deliverance from this, I need freedom from this, and you get that freedom, that's good. And I commend you for that. But that's half the battle. We need to begin to fill our lives with something better something that matters when I first became a Christian I somehow nobody told me this but I knew I was going to have to fill my life with something else I just knew it and I didn't know what that was but all I did was I, I, joined, I became part of a Christian group on campus I would get up every morning and I had a little booklet I did a Bible study out of the booklet every morning had to I would pray a certain amount every day. I was going to Bible studies almost every night of the week or prayer almost every night of the week. Why? Because I needed to fill my life. I needed to fill my mind. I needed to fill my heart. I needed to fill my spirit with something that really mattered. And going about my life the same way I was going about it before Jesus revealed Himself to me would just be a kick in the face because it wasn't working. And if you look at something and it's not working, don't keep doing it. Stop it. Stop it. And I know I went overboard. All right, that first semester that I, I came to know Jesus, I went overboard. I went like gung-ho overboard. But you know what? So what? So what? A decision was made that was going to affect my eternity. My investment into that decision could never be too precious. Ever. Time, money, effort, grades, whatever it was going to cost me, could it cost too much? Absolutely not. And somehow, somehow, 19 years old, I had some kind of perspective on that and I just did it. I understand why I did it now. I didn't then. 
And I'm just sharing with you that we've got to make those kind of decisions. Even if it seems like, wow, it's crazy. Well, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather be crazy. I'll be crazy for the rest of eternity in the presence of Jesus. And to appear sane to a world that's losing its mind. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, For if we are out of our minds, it is for the sake of Christ. Love that verse. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5. Yeah, or somewhere in there. But I, I remember reading that as a student, and I memorized it. I memorized certain verses. And that was one of them. Because I had people questioning me if I was okay. Because something changed in a day where, you know, I was hanging out with who? You know, not good people? Or good people? I don't know what they were. Who cares? But I wasn't partying. I wasn't doing the things I was doing. Lived in the same dorm, had the same friends, was around the same people, but I just wasn't participating in the same same stuff that I used to. They'd see me up in the morning reading my Bible and doing Bible studies. Are you okay? If I'm out of my mind, which I did consider as a possibility, it's for the sake of Christ. Yeah. My dad told me flat out I was out of my mind. I went home for Thanksgiving and Sitting around reading the Bible, he's like, yeah, you lost your mind. Are you failing? Is there something you need to tell me, son? <laughs> no. No, everything's good. Yeah. Lost my mind. So, so that the verse there where it talks about the priest, where he appointed the priest, he set the priest up over their wards. What's a ward? What's a charge? Yeah. You know, what, you always think of a ward. Uh, there's a comic book you might think of when you hear the word ward. What is it? Batman. Come on, yeah. Comic geeks. Yes, and, and who's the ward in Batman? Robin. Yeah, Robin. Dick Grayson. Yeah, Dick Grayson is his ward. It's true, though. It's true. I read one comic book. I read one comic book. It was Batman. Yeah. And so Dick Grayson was his ward. You know, and what does that mean? That means he took care of him. That he took legal responsibility over him and he took care of him. And so Bruce Wayne took responsibility, legal responsibility to take care of Dick Grayson. And and so then cities are often divided into wards. And they have people over them, and it is their responsibility to oversee that ward and to provide for it and represent that ward to others. And so when and literally this verse, it says he appointed priests, it literally means he set them over their wards. In other words, he set them over the people that they were responsible for that they had a responsibility for the people that were living in the land at that time. And so, He appointed them, empowered them, 
and instructed them to take responsibility for other people. What? What? Yeah. Yeah. And and we, as I stated earlier, so you don't think I'm just pulling this on you now, I said it earlier, we are a kingdom of priests. So we, and I want you to think about that for a second, the priests were put in charge of over their wards. In other words, they were appointed, empowered, and instructed to take responsibility for others. In other words, they were to care for other people, people caring for people. You know, it's kind of that age-old question. And I really want to encourage you in this because some of you have turned inward and you need to turn outward again. Turn it out. Because when you turn inward, it's a dark place. It just is. When I'm taking care of me, I'm all about me. That's a dark place. Even though people that say that stuff, they seem like they're happy, they're not. They're not. They only seem that way. i got to do me. Yeah, I understand. And I'm not talking about, you know, taking an afternoon off to go enjoy a waterfall or something. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a life decision where we just turn inward and we turn away from the world and it's all about us. That becomes a really dark place quickly. It just does. And God is continually, continually encouraging us outward. Encouraging us. Empowering us to care for people. He wants us to care for people. Yeah, you start with, uh, yeah, what was the first, what was the first big, you know, after Adam and Eve and their family was cast out of the garden, what was the first big sin that we know of? Murder. And so you got Cain and Abel. And so Cain kills Abel, and, and so then God says to Cain, you know, where's Abel? And what, what's Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? That's his first response. See, that's a dark place, man. That's a dark place. Because he's, he's just a straight up murderer. Straight up. Just killed his brother. Family. God said, well, where is he? Am I my brother's... In other words there, am I my brother's guardian? Am I my brother's babysitter? Am I my brother's overwatch? And you know what the answer to that is? Yeah, you are. You just don't want to be. Yeah. I mean, why did God ask him? Because he is his brother's keeper. And he knew, too. He knew where he was. Right? And so... And so, that, you know, one of the versions I read in my, my brother's Overwatch, uh, we had the opportunity to do some training, me and Martha did, down in North Carolina, and we were working with Special Forces guys, and there was one guy in particular there that's uh, a little more well-known uh, that was running the event, and he's on Fox News. He, he got famous because uh, somebody was talking about uh, the Taliban are talking about Al-Qaeda, I think. It was Al-Qaeda. And they had asked him about Al-Qaeda, and I, I'm not going to quote him right or anything like that, but 
I mean, right on Fox News, he, he's like, yeah, well, yeah, we, we can't fear cowards. And these people are cowards. And so he gave his address on Fox News. And he basically just said to Al-Qaeda, come and get it. Hey, come and get it, you cowards, come on. And you might think that's stupid, but it inspired a lot of people. And it broke fear over a lot of people's lives. They were at that time afraid of terrorism. They were afraid of Al-Qaeda. And so when we were in a, we were in a parking lot at a Walmart and we were doing a training exercise there, and as we were going about the training exercise, there was a guy standing in the back of a pickup truck the whole time. It was at night. And he was just, he looked, he looked ominous standing there. It was dark. He had kind of parked in a darker part of the parking lot. But he just stood in the back of the pickup truck. And he was on overwatch. And his job was to watch the guy that was training us and to make sure nobody was coming to do him any harm. And it was kind of refreshing to see that. It's kind of nice. That that guy cared enough, and was probably getting paid enough, to stand <laughs> in the back of that pickup truck on Overwatch while we were going about our business in that parking lot. That was kind of cool. I mean, I kept my eye on him, but yeah, it was kind of cool. Am I overwatch for my brother? Yeah. You are. You are. Let's look up some verses. I got a bunch. A bunch. So help me out here. Hebrews chapter 13. I need somebody to read verse 1. Thanks. First John four, twenty and twenty one. First John four, twenty and twenty one. Yeah, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Well, it's just me and God. You know, I, I got my faith in God. And we got our relationship. We got our thing going. I don't really need those people. You know, no, it doesn't work that way. You're going to live out your faith with people. And that's the only way to live out your faith is with people. You can't say, I love God, if you're not loving your brother. You can't do it. And so all of those things that people say, and all those fancy things, well, it's just me and God, you know, we got it. I don't need y'all. Yeah, you do. If you're going to live it out, if it's going to matter, if it's going to mean anything, yeah, you do. 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. Another good one, too. Yeah, you 
sensing a theme here? We gotta turn out. We gotta turn outward. We gotta get out of that dark place. Out of those dark places that are inside of us. We gotta turn outward and we gotta love people. We gotta serve people. We gotta care for people. Galatians 5.13 Yeah, and and all I want to say about that, and the reason I chose that verse, is you're free. We're free. I'm free. You're free. But don't don't use your freedom as an opportunity to just be a jerk. I mean, seriously. That that we're free, and, and it's not a matter of conscription that we serve one another. It's not a matter of conscription that that we have to care about one another. It's not that at all. We're free. It's us making a choice, making a choice to care about each other. You making a choice to care about each other. Me making that choice. So what does Jesus have to say about it? Let's look at Mark twelve thirty one. Mark twelve thirty one. Second it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than this. What was the first commandment he said? Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Yeah. And then love your neighbor. Alright, so he, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment, that was his answer. Love God and love each other. But they're together. Do you get it? They're together. There's no greater commandment, but they're together. That is the greatest commandment. Love God, love each other. Yeah, I don't like that part. I'm going to split it up. Yeah, no, you can't do it. Nope. They go together. You can't do it. I mean, macaroni and cheese ain't no good without the cheese. Okay? Unless you put something else on it. But macaroni and cheese needs the cheese to be macaroni and cheese. They go together. And when they're together, they're good. Yeah. You can't split that. Stop. What else did Jesus have to say about it? John thirteen thirty-five. John thirteen thirty five. So he gives one distinguishing mark. People will know that you're my disciples if you act really pious. No. If you wear a certain kind of clothing. No. If you don't listen to certain kinds of music. No. If you are, if you know the Bible, you memorize the whole Bible. No. Distinguishing mark 
of Christians, according to Jesus, and I'm just talking Jesus here, is that we love one another. That's how people will know that we belong to Him. That's how they know. So we don't necessarily have the right words. We don't necessarily have the right hair or, or the right clothing. Or we don't necessarily you know, say the right things in all the right times. We don't always do the right thing when we're supposed to do the right thing. What, what's the defining mark? The defining mark is that we love each other. And see, you can't, you can't go anywhere else. It's, that's what it is. So really, if you look at the New Testament understanding of this, you look at what Jesus said about it, you can't split it. There's no split. You can't just tear off a piece of it and remain the same. It's what it is. The whole thing. And so, turning ourselves outward to love the people around us is part and parcel to the whole thing. Well, love God when you love each other. You know, you're a Christian, well, that, you're going to love one another. You can't say, I love God unless you love your brother. Greater love is no, no man than this thing. Lay down his life for his friends. Friends. Yeah. Those are the distinguishing marks of who we are. And so, the king, Josiah, he cheers them. He cheers the priests. He's like, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. This is our vision. This is our, our, our purpose, our plan. This is how this is going to work out. This is true reformation. True reformation. Is that we're going to love God. We're going to worship God. We're going to spend time in His presence. But we're also going to love each other. We're going to spend time in one another's presence. We're going to gather for celebrations. We're going to gather for meals. We're going to do what God has commanded us to do. We're going to worship. We're going to take time in His presence. We're going to do all those things. And it's through doing all of those things that true change takes place. That's how it happens. There's no shortcut to that. There's no easy way to that. It's just how it happens. And so Josiah cheered them on. He encouraged. He exhorted. He instructed them toward service of one another. Toward work and life in His presence. Toward the will of God. And toward a cheerfulness and a constancy. In other words, it's a good thing in the economy of God to just do what you're going to do and be consistent, to be constant at it. And it's a a real high uh, understanding of who God is to do it in a cheerful manner. And so... There's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of value in doing what you do cheerfully. There's a lot of value in consistently doing what you're doing. There's a lot of value in keeping at it. There's a lot of value in encouraging one another. There's a lot of value in cheering each other on. A lot of value. 
And people like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, they've done studies about people working jobs, and if they're happy, cheerful, they, they don't mind their job, they like their job better. But if it's depressing or even if it's hard work, if, if they're having a good time while they're doing it, it's okay. But even even a, a job that's not that hard, if you know it's depressing, it's down, everybody's down, everybody's complaining and all that, there's no satisfaction in that. It's a hard place. And so there's something to be said for going about things in a cheerful manner. Something to be said about going about things in a constancy. And and what I what I really want to uh, end with is this: that why would the priest need to be cheered on? Well, because sometimes when you represent something that other people don't understand, or sometimes when you represent something that other people can't quite see or grasp. Sometimes when you represent something where you feel like you're the only person doing it, you need to be cheered on a little bit. And that's understandable. I know uh, for all of us, every now and then we just need somebody to say, hey, good job. Every now and then we just need somebody, hey, keep going. Every now and then we just need somebody to say, hey, I really appreciated what you said there or what you did there. I really saw what you did. I see what you're doing. And it's appreciated goes a long way, a whole long way. And I know some of us, we look at those kind of things like fluff because that's what we were raised, but it's not fluff. It just is, it's true, it's, it's human. It's who we are. And so if Josiah had to encourage the priest, if he had to cheer him up, cheer him on, alright, that's good enough for me, that's a good Bible example. It's okay. And let's be ready to cheer one another on. Let's be ready to exhort one another. Let's be ready to encourage one another. I just listened to that part in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where Paul's talking to the church about giving. And he said, yeah, we able to get some money up for some other Christians that are in need, so just really appreciate getting the money up. And But he, he makes a point there. He says, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So he was thanking him for giving, but he also exhorted them into a position where maybe they'd be even cheerful while they gave. Wow. Yeah. Or exhorting them into a position. You think about some of the stuff you do. You know, if you come to evangelism and I'm running evangelism, I try to exhort people every week to be cheerful about it. Sometimes more successfully than others. But but I, I consider that a real part of what we're doing in ministry. And, and so I try to do that there. Because that's something that I'm running and I'll, I'll try to do it. And so there's other things that I try to do that with too. It's just to to help people to you know, go about their work and their toil but with the right attitude. The Lord loves that kind of a cheerful heart. And it makes the work a lot easier. So we'll take a few moments. We're going to pray and uh, just respond. Again, what this is talking about is some real change and real reformation. And whether you want to apply this globally, you want to apply this nationally, you want to apply this locally, you want to apply this to your life, it fits any of those places.
And I want you to think about your life since we're all sitting here. I'm not the spokesman for changing the world. All right? But I do believe that people change one, we, things change one person at a time. And so let's start with me and you. We, we get some deliverance in our life. What are you going to fill it with? You need some deliverance in your life? I'm happy to pray with people for deliverance, but you're going to have to fill that with something. You've got to fill those lies that drive that, whatever it is, with some truth. You've got to fill that fear with some love. I mean, you've got to fill it with something. Let God create something in that. You've got to put your hand to the plow. Maybe start reading the Word. Maybe start praying some. Yeah. How serious are we? If, you, if you're serious enough to pray for deliverance, I hope you're serious enough to see it through. Because that's half the battle. Getting free is half the battle. Staying free, that, that, that's where it comes down to it. That's where your work begins. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to find that place. To find that place. Father, I thank you that you're a God who delivers. I thank you you're a God who sets us free. I thank you that as we pray, uh, we are set free from bondages. We're set free from habits. We're set free from addiction. We're set free from lies. We're set free from uh, depression. We're set free from uh, just things that, that bind us in our lives and our hearts and our relationships one with another. We get set free. Well, good. I thank you for that. But God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to displace those things in our lives. What it means to fill our lives with something else, something better. Josiah just looked at the book and he knew. He said, all right, well, this is in the book, this is in the book, this is in the book. Well, so are our issues are in the book too. And, and the answers to what our issues are, they're in the book. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illumine the things that we need to see, the things that we need to read, the things that we need to take hold of in our hearts and our lives to not only get free, but stay free. And God, I do, I pray that you set your people at liberty tonight, but I pray we stay at liberty in Jesus' name. Not to be set free from fear for a moment, to be set free from fear. And to walk out of here and to walk into tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and the next week free from fear because we have displaced it with a perfect love that tells us that we are cared for and that we're safe. So Father, I, I just pray You teach us how to, how to actually go to battle and to actually see our lives change. And to live freely and at liberty. God, I would ask that we would begin to turn ourselves as part of this process. We begin to turn outward in our vision. That we could really see people around us. People that are in need. People that are hurting. People that need someone to talk to. People that need someone to listen. People that just need somebody to sit with them. People that that are all around us, I pray, God, that you begin to, to turn our focus so that we could love our brothers and our sisters. Because it goes with everything. We love God. We love our brothers and sisters. We serve God. We serve our brothers and sisters. 
The greatest commandment, love God, love each other. It's together. And I pray it would be together in us. And so God, I, I pray light to shine in the darkness, in hearts today, and in minds today. That God, as people begin to turn out, that light would stream into places of darkness in their lives. And they get some hope. And they get some life back into their heart. Get some life back into their spirit. Yeah. Some joy. Some peace. Thanks, God. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. So God, I pray you cheer your people up tonight. I pray that uh, we'd receive of you. Receive of you, God, just a, a cheerfulness. And I pray we'd leave this place with a cheerful heart. We give you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyway, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of the faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.